I don't know about you, but I'm finding the coverage a little sparse on this whole China-Taiwan issue. It's a little surprising. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast, where we cover all things natural resources, including financial markets, with Chief Market Strategist Gareth Soloway. We have a fabulous interview. I'll get into that in a second here. But I gotta say, like, I am doing searches on Google News to try and find out what's going on with Taiwan. I mean, where is the coverage? It's like, this should be wall to wall, I would think. Like, am I so off? Are you finding it easy to get a lot of information? I'm going to weird websites like firstpost.com to actually get the information. I mean, to Bloomberg's credit, they actually revealed some very important information on the import curbs. They had a story out on August 3rd, but that's not even making it to the front page of what China is limiting in terms of exports to Taiwan. Now, if we go to the Bloomberg story first, and then we have to go to First Post to get actually additional information. Have you even heard of First Post? I, I'm not even like, I've probably been there once or twice. Anyways, let's just take a quick look at this Bloomberg story because I think it's crucial to revealing the playbook. And again, which feeds directly into our mining industry here, China hits Taiwan with trade curbs amid tensions over Pelosi. This is August 3rd. And it says China suspended some fish and fruit imports from Taiwan, citing excessive pesticide residue detected on products since last year, and some frozen fish packages that tested positive for coronavirus in June. Are any bells going off in your mind? Does this sound familiar? Like, in my mind, I hear turbines for the Nord Stream pipeline. And like, oh, there's a technical issue here. Therefore, we're going to reduce exports of energy to Europe. Now, if we go back here to the Bloomberg article, this is also very weird for me how this coverage goes. Again, credit to Bloomberg for mentioning it, because I don't know if I would have even seen this information. Exports of natural sand used in construction were also banned. Now, it doesn't come up in this article that the sand is important for semiconductors. But if you go to the first post, like, I mean, it's kind of like that was the big takeaway from the Bloomberg article, what I just read you. Now we're going to look at the first post here. Because again, and I think this is crucial because this is the playbook. And again, it, it feeds directly into natural resources here. Because the takeaway here is if you cross Russia or China, they are going to restrict the availability of commodities, hello, rare earths, and hello, whatever else, whether it's oil, natural gas, or you name it, maybe it's medicine. So let's just look at this first post very quickly. So this is firstpost.com. They're saying the Taipei-based United Daily News reported that the ban was imposed on Monday night, and this was on Taiwanese food factories, including biscuits and pastries. Now, you may not think biscuits and pastries are a big deal, but it says here, biscuits and pastries are important trading items between Taiwan and China, including Hong Kong. And here we go. In addition to the suspension of biscuit and pastries from Taiwan, China has also suspended some citrus fruits as well as fish imports, such as chilled white striped hair tail and frozen horse mackerel from the island nation, 
China defended their import of citrus fruits, alleging repeated detection of excessive pesticide residue. And here's the important part, you might say. On Wednesday, China's Ministry of Commerce said it had suspended sand exports in line with unspecified legal provisions. Such a move was based on laws and regulations, the ministry said, without elaborating. News agency AFP reports that most of Taiwan's imported sand and gravel, which is used for producing concrete and asphalt, come from China. Sand is crucial for Taiwan as a raw material for construction projects, including transport and water conservancy, while it is also used for producing silicon wafers and chip production, which is one of the island's key manufacturing sectors. Now, this little like added detail, not in the Bloomberg article that I could see, and kind of just tucked away here as a side issue, seems kind of like a bigger deal than is being let on here. Now, interestingly, you know, I don't want to be alarmist here either. Like, let's give the full story here. As per official data, Taiwan has imported 15,000 tons of natural sand, including silica and quartz sand from mainland China in the first six months of this year. However, this is just 1.88% of its total import of sand. Australia has been Taiwan's biggest source for natural sand this year, data revealed, accounting for over 48% of total imports. Now, this is the thing. If you look at the map and where all these uh, naval exercises are, I mean, it looks like a siege. I mean, sieges are what you normally do to a city where you block off all, all entrance and exits out of the city so nobody can leave. I mean, it's an ancient military tactic for taking a city. You starve people out, basically. If you look at China's blockade, uh, that's basically what this looks like, is a siege of an island. And just from my like perch here, I'm, I'm a little taken aback that I'm not seeing more stories about, oh, our trip to Taiwan was canceled and maybe we had to get surgery or something, or we can't get out of Taiwan, we were visiting, and now we can't get home to Canada, this sort of thing. I'm not seeing any of that. And, you know, I was looking on the New York Times. I mean, Alex Jones, front and center of the Drudge Report. This morning, the Drudge Report didn't have a single story on Taiwan until just like uh, 45 minutes ago. They have one saying how terrible it'll be in like some tiny little headline on the side. You know, the New York Times was below the fold. And to me, like, I just think like this is has the potential to make Ukraine-Russia look tiny in comparison. I mean, this is big. So I think. I mean, maybe you disagree. Feel free to leave a comment. Am I off here? But I got to say, I am very just kind of surprised. And maybe I just have a different sense of things than your typical news editor. Daily Mail, it was the same thing. I was like, where's it was all celebrity headlines. And I was almost thinking to myself, like, is this how empires end? Where, like, you know, these massive things are happening, and meanwhile, we're looking at, you know, you know, just celebrity nothing stories, you know, like it kind of blew me away. So, anyway, just some thoughts over here in a beautiful August, the Northern Miner podcast. And so, we have a fabulous interview, Gareth Soloway, gracious, gracious Gareth Soloway, who gave us uh, it's a 40 minute interview and I didn't really waste much time in that interview. Like, we went through a lot, like almost everything. I mean, maybe we missed oil 
but he kind of touched on it anyway. But I mean, we even went through the euro and the Canadian dollar. Very interesting stuff on that there too, by the way. And, you know, after probably wearing him down over 35 minutes, he even revealed that he has a $5,000 target in two years for gold. So that is pretty interesting, if you ask me, because he has been remarkably accurate. He was very consistent when Bitcoin was at $69,000, that this thing's going down to twenty. And he called that pretty well, and he's been calling the bear market very well. And so I highly recommend, if you haven't already, checking out Gareth Soloway in the moneystocks.com chief market strategist, whom I call the Internet's technician. He is doing a fabulous job out there, and we are very delighted to have him on the program and for him to be a guest. So thank you, Gareth. It was a fabulous interview. And also, just coming up here, a couple of events that the Northern Miner has. We have a new speaker series coming up, and that is on September 8th. So it's right around the corner, and that is with Bob Quartermain and Andre St. Germain. Now, Robert A. Quartermain is former chairman and founder of Predium Resources, and Andre St. Germain is chief financial officer at Integra Resources Corporation. So they are going to be in... Vancouver on September 8th, another wonderful networking opportunity brought to you by the northernminer.com. Reserve your tickets and get a three-course gourmet meal. As always, just a fabulous event. Again, that is at the Fairmont Pacific Rim in Vancouver, British Columbia. They go back and forth between Toronto and Vancouver. So if you're in Toronto, well, maybe you fly out there, and if not, there should be one coming up for you at some point in the near future. And also, a global mining symposium has been announced, and we have a couple of speakers already lined up. Douglas Silver, mineral economist, keynote speaker, and author, who was exploration geologist at Anaconda Minerals, one of the world's largest copper mining companies. While there, he was a co-discoverer of the Silver Creek molybdenum deposit in Colorado, and also Chris Taylor, whom you may remember as the CEO of Great Bear Resources, which was taken out by Kinross Gold for a mere $1.8 billion in February. So a couple of great guests already lined up. That is coming up on September 28th, 29th. You can also register your interest at events.northernminer.com. So lots going on as we get prepared for the media new year after Labor Day. In North America, where our real New Year starts for the business community. And with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, Baffin Land to terminate 1,100 workers at Mary River Iron Ore Mine. It's by Cecilia Jamasmi. Baffin Land Iron Mines has sent termination notices to over 1,100 workers at Mary River Iron Ore Mine in Nunavut. As the company's request to increase production to 6 million tons through to the end of the year and an expansion application have yet to be answered. So this doesn't necessarily have so much to do with the economy as just permits that have not been fulfilled. The operation on the northern tip of Baffin Island suffered a major blow in May after a review board advised against an expansion on environmental grounds. 
After four years of consultations and deliberations, the Nunavut Impact Review Board, NIRB, rejected Baffinland's applications after four years to more than double output to 12 million tons a year to eventually reach 30 million tons annually. So they just want to double their tonnage. Unionized workers at the mine have asked the government to allow the expansion, which would be the only way to save jobs of thousands, many of whom are Inuit employees. Quote, for a number of reasons, the regulatory process is moving more slowly than is necessary to meet Baffinland's operational requirements, Chief Executive Brian Penny said in an update to staff this week. The company is preparing for two rounds of terminations to take effect on September 25th and October 11th if it is not successful in renewing its permit. Baffinland spokesperson Peter Ackman said the letters were sent to employees last weekend, quote, out of an abundance of caution, end quote, in the event that mine operations aren't approved by the time it meets its current production limit. He added that if the company doesn't hear from authorities soon, it would have to suspend operations for the rest of the year. Quote, if we receive approval to continue mining at 6 million tons this year, as we are hoping, we will rescind the termination notices. So they're playing hardball. Is there anything from the government here? I don't see a response from the government in this article. So interesting. Let's see what develops there. But they're basically putting a deadline on this permit. Permit us or we have to let people go. Canadian mining star Ned Goodman passes... And he is definitely a famous name in the mining industry. It's by Henry Lazenby. Canadian miners are mourning the passing of industry heavyweight Ned Goodman. Over more than 30 years, Goodman has made transformative and enduring contributions to Canada's mineral industry and capital markets as a company builder, merchant banker, and investment advisor during a dynamic career spanning almost half a century. Montreal-born Goodman applied his geological training and business acumen to help build several successful mining companies, perhaps most notably International Corona and Kinross Gold. He also nurtured many other mineral-producing companies through astute and timely investments. In addition to being an outstanding member of the philanthropic community, Montreal-born Goodman was considered one of the leading architects of Canada's investment management industry. He founded the first exploration flow-through partnership with his partner's CMP Group, which has raised billions since the 1980s by funding exploration campaigns and developing mining and petroleum companies. It led to job generation and benefits for rural and northern economies in Canada. He was also the driving force of the Dundee Group of Financial Companies, which grew under his leadership from a $300 million base to a $50 billion mutual fund entity. So you can read more about the very well-known name Ned Goodman on northernminer.com. And he was also a Canadian Mining Hall of Fame member inducted in 2012. So our thoughts go out to the family. And continuing on, Oz Minerals rebuffs $5.8 billion takeover bid from BHP. So what is going on here by Cecilia Jamazmi? Australian copper producer Oz Minerals rejected on Monday an unsolicited $5.8 billion U.S. takeover bid from the world's largest miner, BHP, stating that it significantly undervalued the firm. Well, yeah, copper has come down dramatically, and a lot of the stocks are down too, as we're going to hear with Kara Soloway. Earlier on Monday, BHP had offered $25 Australian per share for Oz Minerals, representing a 32% premium to the stock's closing price on Friday. 
The approach is part of BHP's ongoing quest to expand its copper portfolio. And we have a quote from CEO Andrew Cole, and he's the CEO of Oz Minerals. And he says, quote, we are mining minerals that are in strong demand, particularly for the global electrification and decarbonization thematic. And we have a long life resource and reserve base. We do not consider the proposal from BHP sufficiently recognizes these attributes. BHP CEO Mike Henry said he was disappointed to learn that Oz Minerals board was not willing to entertain his company's, quote, compelling offer or provide with access to due diligence in relation to our proposal. Quote, our proposal represents compelling value and certainty for Oz Minerals shareholders in the face of a deteriorating external environment and increased OZL operational and growth-related funding challenges. And finally, shares of Oz Minerals have lost more than 40% of their value so far this year on the back of COVID-related absenteeism and lockdowns in top buyer China, which has hit copper demand. Well, I mean, let's face it, this looks like an opportunistic play by BHP, which didn't go through. So, interesting... Interesting report from the IEA, the International Energy Agency, which is saying that hundreds of new mines are required to meet 2030 battery metals demand. Yes, you heard right, hundreds of new mines by Henry Lazenby as well. Global battery and mineral supply chains need to expand tenfold to meet projected critical minerals needs by 2030. A report published by the International Energy Agency has found. In short, the report concludes the industry needs to build 50 more lithium mines 60 more nickel mines and 17 more cobalt mines by 2030 to meet global net carbon emission goals. Well, that doesn't sound very likely, does it? Pressure on the supply of critical materials will continue to mount as road transport electrification expands to meet net zero ambitions. According to the IEA, demand for electric vehicle batteries will increase from around 340 gigawatts today to over 3,500 gigawatts by 2030. So again, about a 10x. And we have a quote, additional investments are needed in the short term, particularly in mining, where lead times are much longer than for other parts of the supply chain. In some cases, requiring more than a decade from initial feasibility studies to production and then several more years to reach nominal production capacity. So you see whether it's geopolitics or the greening net zero economy, mining and commodities are really just at the heart of it. I mean, it looks like a decade that's going to be dominated by the commodity narrative. So it's a fun place to be. I mean, mining is not always glamorous, but sometimes it kind of gets pretty interesting. Let's just put it that way. Moving on, Uranium Energy wins race for UEX after sweetening bid. So Uranium Energy Corporation and Denizen Mines were battling over UEX Corp, another uranium mid-tier, and it looks like Uranium Energy won. This is by Cecilia Jamazmi, and it says... The revised offer from Uranium Energy gives each holder of UEX shares 0.08 of one common share of Uranium Energy for each UEX share held. This implies a consideration of about $0.49 per UEX share versus the prior offer of $0.43 per share. Now, this is interesting because Denizen really wanted this. By acquiring UEX, Denizen Mines would have consolidated 100% ownership of its flagship Wheeler River project, of which it currently owns 95%. And we have a quote from David Cates, CEO of Denizen Mines. This is actually quite interesting. Quote, while it is puzzling that the UEX board was not compelled by the premium offer made by Denizen, we are nevertheless happy to see exploration assets in the Athabasca Basin so coveted by other industry participants. It is a little strange, isn't it? I mean, maybe uranium energy 
you know, being U.S.-based, maybe it's sort of seen as a steadier hand. I'm not sure. But UEX shareholders look like they're going to go for Uranium Energy Corporation. A couple of headlines. Turquoise Hill flags $200 million cost increase at Oyu Tolgoy. <laughs> Sega continues. Also by Cecilia Jamazmi. Canada's Turquoise Hill resources flagged after markets closed on Thursday a $200 million cost increase for the ongoing expansion of the massive Oyu Tolgoy copper gold mine in Mongolia. So that means the project total cost has climbed to $7 billion, which is $1.8 billion higher than the original estimate in 2015. You know, when you factor in COVID and inflation, maybe that's not that insane. I mean, it's a large number, $1.8 billion, but if you thought it was going to be five and it turns into seven, I mean, I don't know if it's that crazy. According to Rio Tinto, this would be the biggest new copper mine to come on stream in several years. And by 2030, the operation would be the world's fourth largest copper mine. So not a small project. So it's going to take an extra couple of billion dollars. Anglo-American is going to appeal the El Soldado project rejection. So we were mentioning this earlier. The Chilean Environmental Agency rejected Anglo-American's $40 million operational continuity project for the El Soldado copper mine near Santiago. And it was really interesting, actually. The decision was based on a technicality as COEVA, which is the Environmental Commission, argued Anglo-American should have submitted an environmental impact statement and not an environmental impact assessment. So an EIS rather than an EIA. So it sounds like quite the technicality. So I guess they'll resubmit that. It's kind of a strange issue. You can read the whole story on northernminer.com. Those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. metal prices. Let's just take a quick look at the 10-year bond is at 2.79%. So it's 0.14% higher than last week in yield and about where it was two weeks ago. So nothing special going on in the 10-year bond. As we turn to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. Gold on August 9th is trading at $1,785.05 per ounce. That is $13 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $20.61 per ounce. That is $0.35 higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $938.65 per ounce. That is $27 higher than last week. And palladium is trading at $2,195 even. That is $8 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is a penny higher at $3.55 per pound. Aluminum is a penny higher at $1.11 per pound. Lead is $0.03 higher at $0.95 per pound. Nickel is $0.06 higher at $10.06 per pound. Tin is also higher at $11.23 per pound. That is $0.16 higher than last week. Cobalt is trading at $22.11 per pound. That's 47 cents lower than last week. And zinc is higher at $1.61 per pound. That is 9 cents higher than last week. Overall, both precious and industrial metals, I think, basically we're seeing, you know, they've stopped dropping. It's a couple of weeks now. They've kind of bounced. And now they're just kind of chilling at what almost feels like a bit of a new normal. 
at these higher prices. Again, like nickel, the normal used to be like maybe six or seven dollars. Now it's feeling like nine or ten dollars. You know, it's like these commodities are finding their new normal. But we shall see. And coming up in my interview with Gareth Soloway, we go a lot more in depth on where he sees these metals going. So we'll save it for that. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we are very happy to welcome back Gareth Soloway, Chief Market Strategist for InTheMoneyStocks.com. And Gareth is all over the internet. He has been making great calls in the last year. So we're thrilled to have him back. It's a pretty comprehensive view of the financial markets. Again, we're very thankful for him to give us the time right before he goes on vacation. So I hope you enjoy it and I will see you on the other side. Joining us once again on the Northern Miner podcast, I am extremely pleased to welcome back what I call the internet's technician. He is everywhere on YouTube. In the Money Stocks, Chief Market Strategist Gareth Soloway, welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's it's great to chat, and, and I love talking stocks and charts and commodities and all that fun stuff. Well, we love talking to you, particularly for your accuracy. You've been making a lot of great calls in the last, I guess, 6 to 12 months since I've started to see you pop up, especially during this massive crypto bull market, a historic bull market. I guess it was in stocks as well. So first of all, uh, how is business? How are things going for you? Oh, things are going well. Uh, just about to head out on a cruise for the next seven days. So so that's a little downtime. And I, I think every trader and technician needs a little downtime to rest the eyes a little bit. Although I, I will be honest, I'm going to be still cued into what the markets do because I, I'm a market guy and it's fun for me and it's exciting for me. So so I'll still be queued in, but getting out way a little bit. And the only other thing I'd mention is that bear markets and you know tend to make us realize how much we don't know. And with the crypto bear market and what we're seeing, and in all fairness, even in some commodities, some commodities have collapsed dramatically from their recent highs and stocks as well. It's important to recognize that education is so important. So learning little tidbits, you know, I always say to people. If you learn one thing new about how to read a chart, it literally like your trajectory of financial freedom is just it just parabolically starts incline better and better. It's very cool stuff. Indeed. And you have a program, don't you? Uh, you never brought this up, but I, you have a program for people if they want to learn all that, don't they? Yeah, I just I just launched something called the 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 winning trader series. It's a three course educational series, which is basically soup to nuts. Everything I know I put in this series. So it starts out with, you know, emotional control and, and getting yourself to be in the right mindset to be a, a trader versus getting kind of whipsawed by emotion when you're in a trade. And it goes through the discipline that's needed to be an investor and trader all the way to the setups, the strategies and, and even the, the secrets that I use to trade. Um, it's about 20 hours in total content and video content. It's very cool. And and I really look at it like, you know, I've had people that have just taken it, it just debuted, and they say, like, it changes the way they view everything. And that's cool. That's great to hear. That sounds very interesting. I may check that out myself. So just on that whole emotional baggage uh, issue, I, I was wondering to myself, and I want to ask you, uh, just a clarification on your methods. I mean, if we think of James Dines, he was the guy who I, I subscribed to when I first got into this whole business with the whole rare earth stocks. 
back in 2009, and he had four major things that he would pay attention to when it came to investing. It was there's fundamentals, mass psychology, technical analysis, what he called visual analysis. I mean, he claimed to be a pioneer in the field, so you maybe you have something to say about that, and inner baggage. So what I wanted to ask you is, are you purely technical analysis, or do you bring in some of these other components? I mean, you mentioned the emotional. Yeah, so so I'm I'm a big fan of of using multiple things. So so emotional control is so important in psychology. The markets to understand whether it's commodities, crypto, or stocks, or really anything, even real estate, it, it all comes down to psychology of, of the human race, right? So so when you're trading anything, you're trading other humans that are trading back and forth, right? So they're they're deciding it's a good buy, they're greedy, they're fearful. I mean, and so that's really what you have to start to understand to become a level playing field kind of trader where you're not influenced by those metrics. And we see it so much today, especially with social media, where people start to pump stuff on social media and you see everyone just gets so excited and they buy in at the highs. And the key is to kind of understand not to do that and how to step back from that. So, so that's part of it, absolutely. And then you go into things like personal discipline, right? I mean, it, it, that's a key component of any investor or trader. And that comes down to the same kind of concepts about not chasing a trade. You know, can you be disciplined and make sure when you do your analysis and say, I believe this commodity is a good buy at this price, can you be disciplined enough to be patient and sit there sometimes for weeks or months until it gets to that level where you actually execute that trade. And most people don't have that ability. They don't have that discipline. And then we obviously get into the technicals, right? And technicals, I would say at least about 75% of what I do is pure technical. And that gets into chart setups, patterns, pricing, timing, cycle work, all that kind of stuff. So, so there's a big kind of mishmash that goes into what I do, but I do try to stay away from the the masses when when i hear everyone else getting excited about something believe it or not my brain is so trained that i start to think okay well how do i go inverse to this because there's probably a top coming let's say and you can see it by the way you saw it in crypto you saw it in in, in the russia invasion of ukraine how oil popped mm. all the metals popped everyone was like all oh, these are going to the moon and we see what happens they all come back in it's been a brutal drop in the commodities. And just before we get into the markets, one last question I just wanted to ask you just on your general day-to-day -day business. I asked Jeffrey Christian what it is he looks at first in the morning, and he said the U.S. dollar and gold, he's a gold guy, so I guess that makes sense. Is there anything that you look at first or anything that you're particularly like laser-focused on right now? So, yeah, and, and I think it's important to recognize that those things will change over time. But right now, it's absolutely the dollar. The dollar has been the most mm. important thing. I would say if you go back six months ago, it was 10-year yields. The 10-year yield, when it was moving up dramatically, the markets would always move inverse to that. Right now, it seems like the dollar is, is more important because the 10-year yield is kind of stabilized. And a stabilization, by mm -hmm. the way, is kind of a weird term because it hasn't, but it's, it's not making new highs. I think that's the key. It's kind of back within a range. And so right now, the dollar 100%, and then we know that metals move inverse to the dollar generally, so you can kind of extrapolate where the metals are. And then also the markets are tending to move inverse to the dollar as well. Okay, well, let's start then with the dollars. So last I checked uh, today, it looked like it was at 106 or something. It was something like 108 before. In your view, is this uptrend still intact, and do you expect it to continue? 
I actually think we still have more downside on the dollar in the near term. And and per my charts, and this is kind of, again, what's amazing is that the charts oftentimes go counter kind of trend or counter to what the common thought process is. But if you look at your weekly chart, there's a trend line going back, a flat trend line, horizontal line going back to 2001 uh, with a pivot there and then another pivot right there in 2002. And it stretches right over to where we recently made our high. And you can recall that was kind of right where the euro came within par um, and briefly dipped below the $1 level. And then there's also another trend line that's upsloping that, that merges there. And so for me, I say to myself, all right, we, we're hitting major resistance. The dollar is near term overbought. It makes sense that we're going to see some give back. So I think there's a little bit more downside on the dollar. I have the DXY potentially coming down to about 103.50 before we finally see a short term, you know, maybe next move up. Okay, so you expect in the mid to longer term, though, for it to continue higher once after a little pullback, let's say, or is that saying too much? Too early it's, to say. It's so hard to know, you know. So, so I would say this, you know, really short term. I think, you know, so we're talking the next few weeks. I think you got to look for that give back to that one hundred three fifty level on the DXY. Then I think you bounce midterm and maybe make new short term highs. But again, I'm I'm in the camp personally of long term being much more bearish on the dollar. I think that again, we're going to get through this period of the Fed is on the sidelines. They're tightening. I think at some point we're going to go into a very nasty recession because the markets are so used to the stimulus that the Fed has done, the printing of money. And there'll be a point where inflation has come back to, let's say, 4%, right? Which is not their 2% or under mandate, but it's still relatively low compared to the 10% where we are now. And I think that if you see unemployment start surging towards 10%, but inflation is down to 4 I think the Fed is going to say, okay, which one is the worst evil here? And it's going to be the the ten percent or more greater unemployment, and they're going to say, okay, we need to lower rates again, and we need to stimulate, and that's going to then be the the leg lower in the dollar in the future. Interesting. And do you have a quick thought on the euro? I mean, the euro's kind of had a precipitous drop. I'm out here in Berlin, so I've kind of seen it. It's been up close and personal what I've been seeing here. Any thoughts on the euro U.S. dollar pair? Yeah, so I, I think definitely the 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 par value where they kind of hit a dollar, a one-to-one, -one, I think that was the even number that got it a little bit of a bounce. Right now, again, you're getting a tiny bounce in it, but it could be forming a bearish pattern. So I, I do think kind of what's interesting is is the chart tells me that the euro probably bounces back to about 106 to 107. And then I think, you again, if the, that, that would probably coincide with that pullback on the, the dollar to the 103.50 level on the DXY. And then I think you're going to see that that potential next move up in the dollar, which sends the euro into the negative territory or below par value with the dollar. Yeah, I mean, the structural, more from a narrative perspective, the structural view of the uh, euro doesn't seem very good as we look at the energy situation. So that won't shock me. And just finally, on the Canadian dollar, we have a lot of Canadian listeners here just on the Canadian versus U.S. dollar. Any thoughts over there briefly? Yeah, let me just take a look and I'll bring that chart up as we go. Now, the, the, what's interesting about the Canadian dollar is that that you've had a decent, you had a double bottom from 2016 to 2020, and you had a nice move up to kind of a double, triple top around 83 cents versus the dollar. To me, it looks like it's consolidating. I actually like this chart. I think that the Canadian dollar may be setting up to make a move and potentially retest 82 to 83 and maybe even break out. So so actually that chart is not a bad chart. The flag, basically what we've been doing for the, it looks like since early 2021, 
is you've been going sideways to lower on the Canadian dollar, which is actually what we would refer to as an in spirit of bull flag. So the bull, meaning it likely will play out to the upside. So I actually like it. Fascinating. And over to just the 10 year bond, just to give us a gauge on where bonds are. Any thoughts on the U.S. 10 year? Yeah, so I, I still have it priced in that it's going to head back down towards the low 2% range, believe it or not. So so we actually have a, a head and shoulders pattern that triggered, and we should see it come back in. And, and I have a downside target of around 2.1 on the 10-year. And what basically that implies is that the economy is going to weaken further and further, and ultimately the Fed is going to be put on the sidelines. And people might even start speculating in 2023, do they have to start to lower rates again? And the 10-year the, the yield is a beautiful leading indicator in that respect. And so if we start to see that move down, that's basically what it's telling us. Yeah, that sounds like, yeah, it corresponds with your view of a potential recession coming up here. And turning to the markets now, just a quick view on the S&P 500. I mean, we're down at looks like 3,666 on June 16th. Today, we were as high as 4,175 when I last looked. I think we've come down a little bit. What is your thought here? Is this going to continue or are we overextended here? Yeah, so 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 this is what's the what's interesting about the market today is that early in the day we saw a lot of these meme stocks running like Bed Bath Beyond, AMC, GameStop. They were all surging. Mm -hmm. And and in August we have this very light volume and we've seen it this August where there's a lot of big traders that are on the sidelines. They're kind of in that position where they're on vacation with the kids before the kids go back to school. So the markets can be very manipulated and kind of move in these weird ways. And so what we saw today is a lot of that retail money pushing these stocks up dramatically, trying to kind of revisit the crazy, awesome period of 2021. And the, the problem here is, is that this morning, NVIDIA came out, one of the biggest chip stocks, and they basically gave a warning and said things aren't looking good. And so this morning, the stock market was roaring on these meme stocks and the light volume. But the bottom line is smart money knows that if NVIDIA and the semis are dropping, the semis are oftentimes looked at as a leading indicator for the economy. And so now we're seeing this rollover in the stock market that's actually getting kind of nasty. We were up big. Now we're negative in the stock market. And that, again, is something that tells you that small money, retail money got in trying to do these things. And then it, it did lure out some of these bigger sellers, and they're using it to their advantage. So I, I'm actually bearish on the markets here. I think that, again, mm -hmm. the jobs number, um, yes, it shows a reasonably strong economy right now, but we know the jobs numbers are lagging indicators. And therefore, again, you're likely going to see a much faster weakening economy. And I think stocks are starting to recognize that. Yeah. And I mean, from a narrative perspective, it seems like this Taiwan issue, I mean, if China doesn't back out of the Taiwan Strait, I mean, you could see a COVID crescendo down. So that, yeah, I, I hear you on that. Now, longer term, however, do you think we're still in a bull market like overall? Like, do you see this as kind of like a bear segment in a larger bull or would that be saying too much? I I do think we're in a bear market. So I think I think you have to look at it in in almost as if the Fed kind of told us this last November when they finally said, hey, we're going to start withdrawing all the stimulus we've been putting in. We're going to raise interest rates where they're even even supposedly trying to lower their balance sheet and get rid of all the, the stuff they accumulate on their balance sheet. And if we remember is, you know, the biggest thing that was said all over the media and from analysts back in 2020, 2021, it was don't fight the Fed, right? 
And so the idea of that when they said that it was mean meant that the Fed is printing money, that money is finding its way into the stock market. So the stock market's going to go higher. I mean, more money going into stocks raises prices. The idea here is that the Fed came out late last year and said, hey, we're going to do the opposite. We're going to start sucking all this money out. And so right there, it's, you know, people have to say, well, if we said don't fight the Fed then, well, what does don't fight the Fed now mean? And it means the markets are going to start to come down. And so, so I do think you're in this period where the Fed is in a very tricky spot, right? You have an economy that is weakening and probably likely heading into recession, but they can't print money yet because the inflation numbers are too too high. And I often like liken it to like like think about a, kind of a drug addict in a weird way, in a, in a weird weird kind of way. But but someone who just kind of the, the market needs those that stimulus. It needs it so bad. And I do worry that the market is finally starting to realize that the Fed is not there to bail them out on every little 20% drop in the equity markets. And so I think that's a that's a big change. And and investors have to be aware. I think for the last 20 plus years, investors have gotten so conditioned to say, oh, we dropped 10 or 20%. The Fed will come out and save the day and we go back to new all-time highs in like three months. Well, guess what? Fed can't do that with inflation at 10%. So that's where we are right now. And, and I'm very, very kind of a negative outlook on the markets because of that. Now, to play devil's advocate, if the market was to continue to go higher, what level would it need to achieve for you to start questioning your thesis? And, and I guess another way of me asking that is how much conviction do you have in this? Or like, at what point does your conviction start to shake if this thing keeps going higher? Yeah, so so interestingly enough, and and this is this is again going to the charts, is that there's a trend line. If you put it to the all time high that was right at the end of December 2021, and then we had this big big rally in in the bear market that kind of happened in March of 2022. If you connect those two tops today, the Nasdaq 100 just hit that trend line, and so basically that's hmm. that's a trend line that I'm watching, and it's also why I expect a pullback here. Now, if we were to get above that. It's a short-term trend break, and again, trend lines meaning trend um, of connecting those highs, and that would get my attention a little bit. But again, you know, it's it's one of those things where where even if we broke above it a little bit, the question is: is the August volume where a lot of retailers or retail investors mm. are in the market? Are they making the market look like something else when the big players come back in September? Do they kind of reset the market and start to pound it down again? So, so to me, it's it's. It's the Fed is kind of in charge, just like they were on the way up. And and yes, there's trend lines I follow, but I have to be very careful because, you know, don't fight the Fed, right? That's that's the key mantra. Okay. Now, turning to our what we uh, focus on here at the Northern Miner is uh, metals. And if we look at gold, it looks like it just broke $1,800 here. What's your take? I know you've been a bull on gold, and it went quite low, and you stayed with it. Uh, it went down to what sixteen eighty or something, and you did stay with it. I was hearing you on other shows there. So, how are you feeling? I, are you still a bull? I assume so. Yes, yes, absolutely. In fact, it's interesting. At sixteen eighty, you hit the exact low from all. It looks like August 9th, twenty twenty one, March thirtieth, twenty twenty one. March 8th, as well as going all the way back to 2020 in May. So it was a major technical level. I was a little surprised it went that low. But as I stepped back and I said, okay, well, what are we seeing here? Well, we were seeing interest rates, right? We saw interest rates starting to come down, which generally has been correlated with a pullback in, in gold prices. Now, that's not necessarily true. Oftentimes, you'll see it go in the opposite direction. But the biggest thing to me was that the Federal Reserve 
was kind of making it out like, hey, listen, guys, we're going to create a soft landing. We're going to be able to land this plane carefully where we're not going to push us into recession where we need to print money again. And I think that was the key here. But I do think that that is going to fall apart. I think this bounce back in gold has been awesome from 1680 now to 17, mm. like you said, 1800 or so. And I'm still very, very bullish because the long term thesis has to be that while the Fed can't print money now with inflation at 10 percent or so, you get inflation to 4 percent, like I said earlier, and you get unemployment to start to spike in a bad recession. And the Fed is going to have no choice than to start to stimulate again. And it's just it's the, the destructive nature of this kind of save the day mentality, which I understand, you know, it has mm -hmm. saving the economy has this altruistic. I mean, it, it's the idea is good, but it's not healthy for the economy longer term. And I think that's the kicker is that ultimately you're, you're killing the economy longer term. You're creating bigger bubbles that then have bigger collapses. And eventually the Fed isn't going to be able to save the day. So so longer term dollar weakness means gold gonna, should break out to the upside. You know, and I think all these PR guys that work for the Fed and at this point they have the market conditioned where it looks like if they just stop raising in a weird way, that becomes a kind of a loosening of sorts in the mind of the investors. So if they just say, OK, we're going to stop, you could see the markets take off and they don't even need to cut rates. That's right. You know, like so. You're 100% right. And that's, to be honest, that's really why we've seen this big equity market rally over the last two weeks is because the Fed came out in their last statement and, and basically was like, okay, we're going to raise 75 basis points. But then in the in the press conference, Jerome Powell was much more dovish. And the market said, oh, they're, they're basically done raising rates. And, and that created this massive kind of relief saying, okay, well, we were anticipating rates going up another 75 in September or whatever. Now, maybe that's not the case. Buy stocks, right? I think it's going to be short-lived because I think the economy spiraling will start to show itself in the coming jobs numbers. We got kind of a little bit of a relief with this recent jobs number, but but I don't honestly think it's going to last. Now, turning to industrial metals, I mean, we touched on it earlier. Uh, if we look at copper or just the, maybe the basket, whatever makes sense to you, maybe we can look at both, whatever makes sense. We have seen a steep drawdown, and it was quite interesting. I mean, on YouTube, which is a great gauge for sentiment, actually, you are seeing all sorts of extremely bullish calls on oil and on the metals and on wheat. And uh, the sentiment was off the charts. And sure enough, it collapsed. So where are we here? Do you expect it to keep going lower, uh, sideways? What's your take? Yeah, so so short term, um, we bounced off this three dollar fifteen cent level on on copper, which happened to be some major pivot highs going back to two thousand and eighteen. So there was a lot of support there, in other words, and it dictated we should bounce, and we have bounced. I actually see continued upside potentially on copper back to about four dollars, but once we get to four, there is massive, massive resistance there, and I would expect a rollover after that. So I would remain neutral to positive on copper in the near term. And, and then start, once you get to four, be very, very careful about that. Fascinating. And is, would you generally have the same view on something like nickel? Or are each of these sort of metals different for you? Or are these huge industrial metals, I imagine they kind of act somewhat in unison. Any, any thoughts on nickel and that what I just said? Yeah, so I, I think you're exactly right. I think on nickel, same kind of thing where where you anticipate that it should have some upside in the near term. But ultimately, if if I'm right that we're going to head into a, a little bit of a worse recession than everyone's anticipating, and right now the markets are still hoping the Fed can do this kind of soft landing with no recession, 
um, and kind of getting inflation down. But I don't think that's going to happen. And by the way, part of that is the fact that the Fed has a horrendous track record of, of soft landings. I mean, they just aren't good at it, frankly. Um, so you have to go with that angle. So the market anticipating a soft landing will likely lead to these metals bouncing back up in the near term, inclusive of nickel and copper. But once you get later this year, early 2023, and we start to see potentially a recession, maybe a bad one, that's going to be the, the kicker for the rollover in these metals again. So you could actually see them going up until the end of the year. Uh, is that right? It, it's tricky to know. Is I that, mean, that's that timing sure. aspect is very, very hard um, to understand. So I'm not sure. I think it's more that we'll continue to rally near term than maybe do a lot of chopping action where people are kind of on both sides. All right, maybe it, we're going to avoid the recession. Maybe not. Maybe this is okay. Maybe not. And then I think again, as you chop sideways, eventually you kind of roll over. And then once you get that rollover, that's where momentum comes into the downside. Okay, excellent. Now, I wanted to take a look at a couple of the energy metals, the old school energy metals, coal, which I find actually quite fascinating. Looking at the chart, it actually looks like it's just coming to a kind of support. I don't know if it broke that support or not. Any thoughts on coal? Let me take a look at that. Yeah, you know what? That does look like it broke some near-term support. So I do see that as having some downside here, potentially. And, and again, it makes a lot of sense. You're starting to see oil roll over. We've seen oil heading back down. And, and I've said for a long time, you know, even when we were at 125 or so on oil, that I saw oil getting as low as 85 to 75 by the midterm elections. Mm. And, and sure enough, we've come down quite a bit. So it makes sense that coal is going to roll over as well. I think that makes a lot of sense. I also think that you have to look at the new bill that's coming in on alternate energy. Mm. And so, you know, the, all this money going to kind of subsidize alternate energy the main one that's going to kind of fall by the wayside is going to be the dirtiest, which is the coal. And that, again, is probably why you could see a drop here on coal. Fascinating. And my chart on lithium looks kind of like plateaued. I don't know what you see on your charts here. I have just sort of a basic internet web chart here. Any yeah, thoughts we'll on the lithium? L LIT, Global X, Lithium and Battery Tech ETF, at least. And yeah, you're right. You've seen a lot of sideways chop here. You know, right now, it's a hard chart to read for me. It looks like it's just some sideways action where it's not really telling me, is it going to break up? Is it going to break down? And again, yeah, I think at this point, that would be one of those things. I, in, in the trading world, we call it a no touch, where it's like, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. it's a buy, sometimes it's a short, and sometimes you just sit on your hands and you say, wait till it shows me something more where I have more information and then I can make a trade on it. That makes a lot of sense to me. And finally, what are your thoughts on uranium? I mean, to me, this looks like a great chart, but you're the expert here. <laughs> Let me take a look at that. Let's do a uranium ETF here. Yeah, so it's it's had a short-term bull flag. So it looks like it popping a it's popping a little bit today off that bullish pattern. Let me see here. Yeah, I mean, it looks to me like it's trading. It could head back to about 26, 25. On the uh, and I'm looking at the URA by the way. The URA is the Global EX Uranium ETF. So 26.25 could be your upside. Uh, downside risk is about the $18 level. There's a lot of support there. It's trading right now at $21.61. So so it looks okay. It doesn't look too bad. Short term, it could be some upside. I would say continue to be very wary in this environment where where at any mm. point we could see a big downdraft in the markets, which could affect things like uranium as well. Um, but yeah, short term, it looks like you might get a little bit of positive, not enough to get me excited about a trade, though. I was going to say, you don't sound like you love it. And to your point, if you expect a big market pullback, I mean, we can expect that a lot of these stocks could be or metals could be dragged down with it. And so just to wrap up here, I just want to touch on 
few of these big mining stocks, like we have BHP here. I mean, it's got this crazy dividend of 12.87%, PE of 8. What is your take on this chart? I was looking at these charts and I was saying online on the show, I was like, and I don't, it's probably not a double top, but to me, I was like, are these things like a double top? What's your take on that? Yeah, so a lot of it does kind of look like that. And 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 I mean, a lot of the miners have suffered. We've seen GDX really suffer. Um, it's Although it's, I think it had, last I checked, it was having a good day today. But we have to remember that inflation, so when you're trading miners and there's inflation, it's not a pure play for them, meaning that gold is pure play for inflation, meaning that you don't have extra costs. Gold is gold. But the miners have all these input costs. They have to buy machinery. They have to get paid labor. Energy is a huge component as well. And I think people forget that when it comes to the miners because everyone wants to invest in the miners because they they usually multiply. Like like if, if a commodity goes up 1%, oftentimes they're up 2 or 3% on that same move. But again, we have to remember that, that a lot of that stuff plays into the inflation side as well. So if inflation is coming down, like we're, we're hoping it is, like the, the oil chart and some of these other ones do show, I think the miners make a lot more sense. But again, I'm still conservative on it and, and just kind of playing a few little ones here and there. Or I shouldn't say little. I don't mean little plays, but just n not big positions. I do have some miners in mm -hmm. my portfolio, but I'm not overloaded for sure. Interesting. And on that, are you in more industrial or gold miners or just all over? Generally, right now, I'm more in the gold miners, the Newmont Minings, the AEMs in the world here. And basically, again, the same kind of thought process is that that I do worry about the the economy and and if we get you know some bad economic numbers on any one day and you start to see a lot of these industrial commodities start to slide again it just makes me nervous about kind of putting too much money in those right now versus gold I I look at it like all right you know gold even if it goes down near term it has that upside that I view on the future money printing and so it's a little bit of a safer trade so you prefer, in a sense, from a risk management perspective, the commodity to the stocks, particularly because of these inflation worries, which we are seeing actually in stories on the miners. Uh, they're coming out with earnings and we're seeing over and over inflation costs yep. are rising, as we all know. Yeah, if you're looking to just basically be safe, then something like a gold is where you want to be right now because you don't have that inflation eating away at profits like it does for the miners there. Absolutely. In fact, I often kind of liken what's going on with inflation and the costs of mining. And this is kind of a weird take, but I think it makes a lot of sense. I don't know how many people out there listening know about crypto and how how oftentimes you'll see these, these periods where Bitcoin, it becomes harder and more expensive to mine Bitcoin and crypto. Mm. Um, and so the, the miners for crypto, if the price is not higher, then they stop mining, right? It, do it doesn't make sense from an energy perspective for them mining to make profits on Bitcoin at, at a current price. Well, guess what? In a weird way, that almost is going to work the same way for the miners and for gold because, in fact, I think Newmont Mining said something like this. They were going to stop mining one particular style of gold because the cost was now too high. And what that's going to ultimately do, it's going to force the price of gold to go up because you're going to see less mining mm. going on. And so it works in very similar ways where it'll actually push the price. So the higher inflation goes, in theory, it should actually push up gold just because of that. 
because more miners will stop mining the more expensive techniques. Yeah, Newmont just put out their earnings call, so I guess that's where you heard it. And I'm looking at the yes. chart here. I mean, and again, like we're almost at a 5% dividend. I mean, you're kind of in and out of stock, so maybe the dividend doesn't matter as much to you, but it's still remarkable. And it we is. know that like the U.S. hedge fund managers, they love Newmont. It seems like, at yeah. least that's my perception. That's their go-to kind of gold stock. And frankly, it, like it's been a huge pullback from where it was, but it actually looks like it's kind of you know, maintaining its little trend line there from back to, uh, is that 2016 or something? Yep. So what's your take on just the chart of Newmont? Yeah, that's that's it's one of my favorites. Um, if you connect the lows from 2015, 2016 to the low from 2019, and then you actually touched it in the COVID crisis on the collapse as well in 2020, you extend that out, we're just a dollar or two above that line, according to my chart. And to me, that's everything, right? So not only is it trading down from like 85 bucks down to 45, but then at 43 or so, you have epic support, a long-term trend line. And we know again that gold likely will head up uh, in the longer term. So I think this could be one of those that you tuck away for a longer term trade on a miner. Yeah, a bit of a safer one, at least from a perception point of view here. And like you're saying with Agnico Eagle, also a good looking chart. 3.64% for Agnico Eagle dividend, yeah, amazing, isn't uh, that, it? which is, it's pretty high. I mean, usually they're kind of hovering around the one and a half to 2%, nothing special kind of dividends, you know, and now it's yeah. pretty attractive. Uh, do you basically have the similar thought on Agnico? Yeah, yeah, I do. They actually had good earnings and the stock actually gapped up on the earnings, but it's still at a very mm -hmm. steep, steep discount from where it was trading just earlier this year, down from 67 to about 45 or 44. So I, I do think that this is an interesting one. I, now, it, it has rallied quite a bit in the last two weeks. As a trader, as a swing trader, I don't chase those things. So what I would look for is, okay, can it pull back to, let's say, from 45 back to 42, maybe 41? Maybe at that point, I start to nibble a little bit. But I just always hate, I always hate paying up for stocks. Like I want it at the lowest point into that key technical level so that I feel good about my entry versus I always hate thinking I'm buying after lots of other people have already jumped in. I never like to be a chaser. Absolutely. Like that's what all the most experienced people I hear say is never chase a stock. Now, just on this point, this, this is something else and we're just wrapping up here. But Agnico Eagle, like I told my mom, like when I knew nothing about anything that she should buy Agnico Eagle back in 2010, because I was listening to all these gold podcasts and whatever and knowing nothing. And she bought it at $72. And here we are at like, you know, what, what was it? Mid 40s, whatever it was at. And I was wondering to myself out loud on a previous podcast, you know, are miners not long-term holds? Like, are these simply cyclical stocks that you have to buy and sell like Rick Rule? Like, is this the sad situation here for our industry? Yeah. So so I think the key is, is I, I do think they are somewhat cyclical in that way. But I think you have to look at it like, okay, well, they're going to have these big swings. So you want to capture the swing. But even if you're sitting in it waiting for that, the, the dividend makes it worth it. Like if you, you know, if you get five or 6%, that's a really nice dividend. Uh, and then if you can catch some of that upside in the cycle, then that's also worth it. But, but I do think you have to look at it like, again, if, if their costs are going up, then that's going to put pressure on it. And I mean, there's, there's these give and takes back and forth, which, which do make it tricky. But ultimately, I do think we're closer to the lows of a cycle on the, on the the miners, and I and we're probably getting ready for that kind of. 
I actually have a, a goal target for like two years out of $5,000. So you can't tell me that if we're going to hit that, the miners should all do really, really well. $5,000, two years out. Is this a new call for you, Gary? Yeah, yeah, I, th I think so. I've talked a little bit about it here and there, but I haven't talked about it recently. But I do think that at some point in in 20, probably 2023, the economy is going to be in such dire straits that the Fed will have to come out and and basically say, hey, we're going to lower interest rates. We're going to stimulate the economy. The government will see, see pressure to do more stimulus as well. And I really do think that that is going to be the turning point for gold when the market and investors start to realize that there's never an out from printing money, that this basically tells you that 20 years from now, you're still going to see any every recession of printing of money. It's going to mean that gold is going to have a big, big move up. Fascinating. And just wrapping up on that point then, so I assume you see the markets quite lower, and you've mentioned that in previous podcasts. So you're a bear long term. Would that be fair or two years out, let's say? Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's the key is is the time frame wise. So I mean, obviously, 20 years from now, I think the markets are probably much, much higher. But I would say the next one to two years are going to be very tricky for the stock market. Very, very tricky. Even when the Fed comes out and prints money, I think it's going to be a tricky scenario because again, it, it creates, yes, more money in the system, but it's also going to create hardships for investors trying to figure out, well, well, where does this end? And essentially, where does all this money printing end? And does the dollar then start to collapse? I, I even am a very long-term bear, and, and I and I'm very scared, you know, investor for the future, you know, five years out, ten years out for the U.S. dollar as well. And it does make me wonder if the future is more of a Bitcoin type, uh, you know, kind of a economy or a crypto economy where there are restrictions on how much can be printed, how much debt that the U.S. can actually issue. And I do think as Americans and maybe as global citizens, people are going to say, hey, listen, we need to really keep our governments in check because what they're going to do is just eat away the buying power of every single person um, by stimulating and stimulating. And, and it does, doesn't work. It's not feasible long term. Interesting. And, and just on the kind of structural aspects. So with all the retail that's come into the market in the last, say, since COVID, like sometimes I wonder to myself, has the structure of the market changed where now there's so many more people putting money into the market that do you ever wonder, like, does that ever make you question your thesis of, say, a lower market where there's just all these people? And even now you see like it's taken like one little rally and everybody's kind of the animal spirits are back. What do you think about that argument that maybe there's been a a structural change now that retail and the internet and social media, you know, is there more money going into this market? So th there probably is more money in the markets, but the key is always remembering that investor psychology doesn't change. So as much money as that goes in creates these bigger bubbles, like we're, you could arguably say we're still in. And I think even on this pullback, right? So, I mean, the S&P was down about 20%. But all the investors that came in the market since COVID, which is 2020 of, of March, they all saw how much we were down. We were down, what, 30% in a very short amount of time and how the markets went back so quickly to their all-time highs. And so they're all saying, well, you know, here we are basically the same thing. We're probably going to be back at all-time highs in a few months. When that doesn't happen and we break the lows on the stock market in the next, let's say, three to six months, now you're going to have a, a kind of a reckoning where people are going to get very, very scared. Scared money is going mm. to be selling money, and it's going to drive the markets down very, very sharply. I agree with you. That could cause a panic. If we break those previous lows, that could very much cause a panic. And finally, before you go uh, very quickly on Bitcoin for us here, 
I assume you're still a bear and then long-term bull. Yes. So, so, so my near term, I I'm long Bitcoin. Uh, so I do like Bitcoin just for a little bit of a move up. I've been in since it basically got down to the 20,000 marker, which was major support from the 2017 highs, but I'm basically looking to exit around 25.5 to 28. And then I think we do have another leg down midterm. So yes, long-term, I think it is the future. I think it's going to be the, the alternate to gold. Um, and again, I don't think it replaces gold. I think gold is always going to be there. But in terms of trading in and out, you know, you're buying physical metal, you can't really just go to the store and just sell it real quickly. And I do think that, again, the, the ease of transferring Bitcoin around the world makes it a very viable commodity. Uh, I'm not sure about the altcoins, how those will fare. But I do think, again, long term, yes. I mean, so so near term or midterm down to 12 to 13,000 on Bitcoin. And then long term, I do think you know, 100, 200, 300,000 is very possible. I agree. Well, Gareth Soloway, Chief Market Strategist at InTheMoneyStocks.com, thank you for joining us once again and sharing your wisdom with us on the Northern Miner Podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great. And you have a great trip in Alaska. You get a good rest and we will see you next time. Thank you. There you have it, Gareth Soloway with his remarkable $5,000 gold call in two years. You know, like we've heard over the years, many calls for $5,000 gold. None of them have turned true, but this one I've got a good feeling about. And with that, we hope you enjoyed the show. We have some very exciting shows coming up in the coming weeks. So do stay tuned for that. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, share it with your friends, and until next week, take care.